The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So Lord, we're coming again to your word that you've given us. And we're asking you again to do the miracle of helping us see what's here. Doing the appropriate miracles of exhortation and encouragement, comfort, and conviction by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I trust that you have exactly what's needed for every person in this room and that you will work in us what is pleasing in your sight through your word. So would you come now and help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the the recent years, we've uh, all grown pretty familiar with the rapid spread of disease. In fact, it's, it's kind of all that we've heard about for the last two or three years. And in Genesis 3, we saw God's word questioned. We saw the sin of disobedience. We saw the spurning of God's goodness. And we saw the, the dodging and distancing, is what I called it, that shame creates in human beings. And what we're going to begin to see today in a really stark and ugly and, and really tragically sad event in Genesis 4 is how sin sickness cannot remain isolated but spreads to the ends of the earth. We're going to see uh, the first brother's murder, right? One murder the other. That's how deep sin has already gotten into the world. We're going to see the terrifying escalation of sin to the destruction of others, even blood family made in the image of God. Remember, human beings were created, the shared image of God and shared mission to spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth as his royal family. And instead, what's initially spread here is them turning against each other in sin and self-exalting, sin-driven, and shame-overflowing dominance to the point of death. And maybe... As you study Genesis 4 and you see what happens in Cain's heart, maybe what's most frightening is that we have to confess that we've all been infected. You see this pattern. If you're like me, it's not like, it's not like you don't recognize some of the stuff in him. We feel, I feel, our sinful compulsions, right? Our tendencies towards bitterness and anger and lust and frustration, right? It didn't go my way, right? I didn't get what I wanted, right? This, this isn't fair. And that's flowing from our prideful desire to have what we want, to be what we want, and to get all of that when we want it, right? Right now. We feel ourselves, if you're a parent, you feel yourself kind of passing this disease on to your kids, don't you? Don't, don't you see? Like when your kid does something, you're like, oh, but that, that's me in them. Right? We, we feel ourselves passing this on to our friends and our coworkers at times. We feel it blatantly and tragically celebrated and marketed in our culture. The sin celebrated and marketed. We see it acted out on grand scales in war. Don't we? 
We can feel the sinful cycle repeated and celebrated and perpetuated around us, overseas, in our own hearts, and we can look and see the world is sick with sin. It's sick with sin. So today what I want to do in Genesis 4, and I think what God wants us to see here, is what's at the core of that sinfulness? What's the only solution that can stop this sinful cycle and then see the goodness that comes from the ashes of a redeemed life. So, so what's the core of this sin? What's the only thing that can break up the cycle? And then see the beautiful things that come from the ashes of a redeemed life. So point number one, we're going to see a faithless sacrifice with growing sin and shame. Now remember, this is a real story. It's historical, but in so many ways, because sin is sin and humans are humans, we're just going to see ourselves in this story. Look at verse 1. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now next week, I'm going to dive in a little bit more in chapters 4 and 5 to these two lines of people and how we see them developing through the book of Genesis. But as you read verse 1, you should hear, I think, Eve shouting with great excitement. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I've gotten a man. Why? Because she's thinking, maybe this is the promised offspring. Maybe this is the one that was promised that will crush the head of the serpent. That would have been nice. (laughs) Taking care of the rest of the universe. But that's what she's thinking. You can see the anticipation of God's promise. Eve is again, and this actually encourages me a bit, imperfectly leaning on God's word for her hope here. So yeah, she's been banished, and yeah, things don't look good, but here she is again going, God said this, maybe he's fulfilling it. And what we'll see throughout Genesis is that there's this promised line leading to the ultimate offspring that this book will keep tracing through all the muck and the mire that's coming. In verse 2, we find out she had another son named Abel. And what we find out about these guys is that Abel was a shepherd and Cain worked the fields. And in verse 3, we see that in the course of time, at an appointed time, Cain brings an offering of his work, some fruit of the ground, and Abel brings an offering from his work, a firstborn of his flock and its fat portions. And the Lord accepts Abel's offering but does not accept Cain's offering. And Cain is angry and his face falls in shame. Verse 5. In verses 6 to 7, the Lord comes to Cain and asks him why his face has fallen. Here's what he says to him. If you do well, what does that mean? Do well. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So two brothers, two sacrifices, one accepted, one rejected, one who's angry and ashamed, feeling the rejection. And again, God moving in with loving words of warning. This is a loving thing that God is doing Cain has just sinned, his offering has not been accepted, and God doesn't distance himself. He comes and he says, hey, you can do well. You can do well. So I want to answer the question, why was Cain's sacrifice rejected and Abel's accepted? And I think we have two clues 
that build upon each other in the text and some help from the New Testament. Clue number one, I'm going to dive in here. Some people think that it's because Cain brought fruit or grain or whatever and Abel brought livestock. I don't, I don't think that's the difference. And the reason I don't think that's the difference is that we see later that God commands and commends both kinds of offerings. He commands and commends both kinds, the, the livestock and the, the field or the grain or the fruit. I don't think it's the variety they brought, but the quality they brought. Notice that Cain brings fruit of the field. It's generic. It's kind of obviously generic as you read it, especially in contrast to it saying Abel brings the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. Now that doesn't sound awesome to us, right? No one wants the fat portions. Um, But this means Abel brought the very best of his work and his livelihood. He brought the very best. And I think we see echoes of this in the old covenant law. So listen to Exodus 23.18 and then Exodus 3.12. So Exodus 23.18 says this, The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Exodus 23.18. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring. Or then Exodus 3.12. You shall set apart... All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. That's kind of the echo we see in Exodus. So what was given there? The first fruits, right? The the best, the first of your stuff. You're trusting the Lord. This is the, the first of my things, the best of my things, and it belongs to you. It pleases the Lord. Therefore, as Cain is not specified as bringing the first fruits and not pleasing the Lord, I think we see this pattern. Cain brings a sacrifice of some of his labors, but Abel brings the best. He brings the best. Why did the Lord require the first fruits from his people? To show him honor, right? To, to show that they trusted him, to show that he was worthy of their first and their best. That's clue number one. We're starting to see something. Cain brought something. Abel brought something. Looks like Cain brought kind of generic variety. Abel brought his best, his, his first. So why would Abel bring his best and Cain not bring his best? In other words, not just what happened, but why? What's going on in their hearts? Well, the New Testament gives us some clues. So listen to Hebrews 11.4. By faith, right, this is the great chapter of faith, Hebrews 11, and Abel is the first one mentioned in the chapter. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. In other words, Abel's doing something by faith here. He's coming to God by faith, and because his gift is by faith, God's going, I I accept that. That's commendable. 1 John 3.12 says this, We should not be like Cain, who was the, the evil one and murdered his brother. That's a good note for all of us all the time, right? The next half of the verse says, Why did he murder him? Because... His own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Hebrews 11, 
Abel, by faith, offers this. He's commended as righteous. 1 John 3, 12, his deeds are evil, even though his brothers are righteous, which means at least it's talking about the offering that he brought and probably just generally about the way they lived and, and who they were. So now we begin to see what the Bible says the reason is that he murdered his brother is that his deeds, his sacrifice was evil and Abel's was acceptable because he offered it by faith. My thesis is that the heart behind Abel bringing his best is faith. Trust you, Lord. Trust you, I'm going to obey you. Faith expressed in obedience and the heart behind Cain not bringing his best is evil unbelief. And I don't think it's that much different than the unbelief we saw already in Genesis 3. Right? It's a lack of trust in the provision and the goodness of God. So what's going on? Right? I'll bring a sacrifice, but not my best stuff. Right? I'm going to keep that for me. I'm going to make sure I get what I deserve. I worked hard for this. Whereas Abel is saying, I trust you, Lord. You've provided all I've ever needed. You're worthy of my best. What do I have that doesn't belong to you and been given as a gift from you? A faith-filled heart and one from faithless heart that is full of unbelief. Romans 14, 23 says, Whatever does not proceed, does not come from, does not flow out of faith is sin. Cain is sinning and not trusting the provision and goodness and worthiness of God. He wants to be God. He wants to make the rules. He trusts himself, not God. And we have to confess we all do this, right? God, you can have this part of me. You can have this much of my life. I'm going to keep this stuff locked away in this corner. I'm going to keep this part of my life kind of off limits. I don't want you messing with that, but you can have this much of me. And that's the heart behind Cain's offering. Let's speed through the rest of this chapter. And what we're going to see is sin and shame growing. But what I also want you to see, which is pretty amazing to me, is how merciful and just God is in those spaces. So in the midst of just horrific growing sin and shame and ugliness, we still see God's mercy and justice on display. So here we go. Cain is angry and ashamed. In verse 5, his face is fallen. What does God do? Does he leave him on his own to figure it out? No, like a tender father, he approaches him to teach him. To warn him, to love him. He lays out the options in front of him. You can repent. Turn. Trust me. Get up again and do well in pleasing me. There's hope for you. Or you can keep down this path of faithless and prideful sin. And I'm just telling you, it's going to devour you. It's going to devour you. It's going to consume you. This sin that you're playing with, that feeling in your heart, that anger and bitterness towards me, that shame and anger that wants to come out, it's going to devour you. You think you're going to devour other people? It's going to devour you. This is a merciful and loving warning to turn from sin to faith. And I would just ask you, asking myself all week, is there an area of your life you hear God stooping down in mercy through his word or his people these days and just calling you back 
redirecting you, right? Don't go there. Don't click on that. Don't say that. Been doing it for 20 years. Stop now. Is there a place in your life, in your heart, where you hear the Lord speaking and redirecting you from bitterness and anger and shame and back to following Him and trusting Him? That's His mercy. Painful and uncomfortable as it is, that's His mercy. He's calling you back. But when our hearts, here's what we see here, when our hearts are hardened to God's goodness, do His words soften us? When our hearts are hardened to His goodness, what do His words do? They infuriate us all the more because the guilt and the shame cling to us and lead us to the dark place of distance and hiding. And those who call us to listen or we see listening just heightens our shame and jealousy so that there's this toxic mix of explosion ready to happen. Right? Do you feel that sometimes in your heart? Like even in little ways. You feel that like on the highway when someone's going really slow. Or too fast, right? I mean, that, that's how sinful we are. Like, if I could, right? <laughs> you just, you want to get out of your car and say something. So Cain, with all that going on in his heart, has received a merciful warning, but his heart is being hardened by these words. He goes out into the field and he talks to Abel. We don't know what was said at all, but it obviously did not go well. Because we know that Cain's sin and shame conspire in an explosion of anger against his brother and he murders him. I, I don't want you to dwell on this for too long, but right, this had to be personal. There weren't, there weren't the weapons we have now that make this kind of thing less personal. And so the, the anger and the rage and the, the personalness of this is Horrific. So what sin does. It's an explosion of anger against his brother and he murders him. This is what sin and shame does. It grows and it grows and we think we can hide it and then it just erupts. Right? That, that blow up at your kids this week that you're thinking of, that you're ashamed of, that, that blow up at your work, that blow up at your spouse, I mean, if God is God and He's sovereign and you have eternity, you're forgiven. I mean, that, if we had that mindset, right, we, we wouldn't need to blow up. So that blow up at your kids or your spouse or your workplace, that wasn't really about them, was it? It wasn't really ultimately about them. Kids, that big fight with your brother or sister or friend wasn't really about them. The bitterness you're stewing over secretly in your heart, that person you're so frustrated with, they said this or they did that and it just wounded you deeply. It's not really about them. It's about our sin and our shame and our frustration and our exasperation. We feel guilty and gross and we don't know what to do with it and we don't want to give it away because we kind of like chewing on it and eventually someone has to pay for sin. Someone has to pay for sin. And I think what we see as the Lord talks to Cain in verses 10 to 11 about the, the ground receiving the blood of Abel is that Cain offered his brother on the sacrifice of self. Cain offered his brother 
on the sacrifice of self. Abel died as a sacrifice to Cain's faithless sin and shame and pride. And we still do that. Other people get sacrificed on the altars of self, sin and shame and pride conspiring to make us doubt the goodness of God in our lives and lash out in our frustration that things aren't going how we want them to. They didn't treat me how I wanted them to. They did this thing that I'm going to hold on to, right? The world isn't fair. I don't have what I want. And people get sacrificed on our little altars of self. Well, God confronts Cain. This is just like God, always coming and being direct, right? We see this in Genesis 3. He confronts Cain, and he gets right to the point, where is your brother? And Cain, again, right, what's happening? Fig leaf sowing here, right? Cain lies. He says, I don't know. And am I my brother's keeper? Right? It's that woman you gave me. Isn't this your job to keep track of my brother? Aren't you God? Not me. Why are you asking me? Shame makes us hide and lie and cover up and self-deceive. But the Lord doesn't mess around. He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And from there, the Lord curses Cain, says he will be a fugitive and a wanderer, and that the ground will no longer yield its strength to him. Cain responds, says, The punishment is too much. Whoever finds me will kill me. Why does he think that? Probably because that's what he would do. Right? Probably because that's what he would do. You ever find yourself doing that, kind of projecting all your mess on other people and assuming the worst? Cain's going, If someone finds me, they're going to kill me. I mean, that's what I would do (laughs) if I found me. Notice he's not repentant about what he's done. At least you won't see any signs of repentance here. He's just overwhelmed by the discipline, which is also something that we're very good at. Kids, do you ever get in trouble and you're more sad about the discipline that you receive than you are about your sin? Does that ever happen? Like, yeah, I did it to my brother or sister, but what I'm really mad is I got this thing taken away. Adults, you ever do that? (laughs) We have a kind of shame and unbelief that actually self-deceives us to blind us to what's most important, the sin and unbelief that led us there, and instead focuses all our attention and energy to try to wiggle our way out from the consequences. And what's amazing here, again, is that God is so merciful God is so merciful. God in his mercy says, okay, I'll put a mark on you. I don't know what the mark is. Some people, well, they say a lot of things. One of them says it was a big old dog. (laughs) I never heard that before. Who would walk around and scare people away. Um, He says he'll put a mark on him and he's going to spare him and bring him sevenfold punishment of any who harms him. So God is now defending, protecting Cain, right? No repentance, all this sin, and he's protecting. This is just mercy. And then again in a very sad verse, verse 16, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Notice sin and shame have conspired 
grown. And again, what do they do? They create distance between us and God. We leave the presence of the Lord. And I'm going to come back to these verses more next week, but verses 17 to 23 chronicle Cain's family tree. God allowed him to marry and have generations of farmers and musicians and tradesmen. Think agricultural and artistic and architectural achievement. These are people still made in God's image, able to create and have dominion in various ministries or various areas and various cultural realities. Again, common grace and mercy is seen even in sinful humans, still made in the image of God, able to create and do some things. But I want to finish this section on the growth of sin and shame in verses 23 to 24 to show you how it continues to grow until sin and shame become shameless sin. Sin and shame become shameless sin. Listen to Lamech here in verses 23 to 24. Here's what he says to his wives, plural. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Notice first, but I think significantly, there are two wives. And I think we're supposed to see this as a bad thing. We're supposed to see this as a very obvious departure from Genesis 2 in this marriage relationship. A sign of the lust and the pride and the the taking of human sin. I want more than one. And who's going to say no to Lamech apparently, right? So God said he'd protect Cain. And notice how Lamech has even distorted that mercy and now shifted it again from God-centered provision to man-centered pride. Cain's revenge, right? Not God's protection, but Cain's revenge. Lamech is no longer even ashamed of his sin, but he boasts in it, right? He's self-sufficient, sinful, hateful, brutal, selfish, and proud of all that about himself. This is what happens in a culture when sin and shame continue to grow and distance of people from God. Right, we've said this a few times, but there's no morality apart from God. There's, there's no way to even start to develop a morality apart from God. And so, yes, this is ugly and evil, but of course this is what it is when a people and a culture have distanced themselves from God. There's no reference point anymore to the God who created all things. Instead, Lamech is God. Right? And this just teaches what we already see in our own culture. We should get what we want when we want it. Two wives. Violence against young boys who threaten us. Whatever we want to do in the moment, we get to do it. Instead of feeling proper guilt and shame as we turn from what our conscience says is right, we sear the collective conscience of the culture and instead perpetuate, expand, and celebrate our sin to hide from the shame so that the sin and the shame circles and perpetuates and gets celebrated until we have a culture of shameless sin. That is really just a fancy way to hide from the shame. The world is sick with sin and shame and naturally makes faithless sacrifices on the altar of self until you get to a place of just shameless boasting in our sin. Point number two, 
a faithful sacrifice given for sin and shame. And I'm just going to go where I think the whole Bible wants us to go in this story. So look at verse 10 here. The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Listen to how the New Testament picks up on this in the story. Hebrews 12.24 says, To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A better word. So what is the blood of Abel crying out for and speaking in Genesis 4? Well, I think it's crying out for justice. It's crying out for condemnation, for punishment, for murdering him in his innocence. And I think Cain knows this. He knows he deserves condemnation. We know this in our sinful guilt and shame and anger. The world knows this deep down that it's guilty and should be condemned. That's what the blood of Abel is crying out for. But what does the blood of Jesus speak? What is the better word that we hope in. Well, the blood of Jesus says that someone else took our condemnation. But it also says justice has been served. Right? This is not mercy without justice. This is mercy and justice together. The punishment and the requirement has been objectively met by the perfect, acceptable sacrifice of the sinless Savior, the firstborn, right? The firstborn Son. See the foreshadowing, the God-man Jesus Christ, the one who lived the perfect life we could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die. He rose again to conquer death, and by faith in Him, our sins are objectively forgiven, and our shame is objectively covered. We were all born like Cain. In sin did our mothers conceive us full of sin, full of shame, sinful nature, acting out on it. Kids, right? I always talk about this, but you can see total depravity in your two-year-old, right? You can just see. You don't have to teach anyone to sin. You don't have to teach anyone to be unreasonable. You don't have to teach anyone to be angry or selfish. Kids, right? You disobey and get angry. Adults, we disobey and we get angry. Do you feel the guilt and shame? Right? There there is guilt and shame. We're all born into sin. And the cycle will continue in us and infect those around us unless something breaks the cycle of sin and shame that distances us from our God. And our only hope is the better word spoken by the blood of Jesus that speaks of the great exchange. He takes our sin. I, I just... Like, he really takes it. Your sin really was nailed to the cross. It really was. He really disarmed the principalities and powers and put them to open what? Open shame. Because your shame is covered when your sins are nailed to the cross. He really did that. And you really get his righteousness. When the Father looks at you, he really sees you covered in the righteousness of Jesus. He sees you as he sees his Son. Right? That's not some emotional thing to make you feel better in this moment. It's objective truth that your heart can hold on to and think about and love and treasure until you believe it and rejoice again. That's the good news. That's what the, the blood of Jesus speaks. It's a better word than the blood of Abel. 
If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus, I know that you know that you're a sinner and you're full of shame. I know that you know that you've been trying to cover it up and figure out a way to, to cover it up and not let people see it or maybe celebrate it so that you can feel better about it. But I'm telling you, Jesus is the only answer. He's the only answer. You can trust Jesus now and have your sins forgiven and your shame covered and eternal life forever by trusting in Jesus. That's amazingly good news. And if you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus, but you're caught in cycles of sin and shame, remember the better word of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word objectively. Right? This is historical reality. Genesis 4 is historical reality, and the cross is historical reality. Jesus really died for sins. He really became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And by faith, we receive forgiveness. Our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, and our shame is completely covered. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So right now, you can lay your guilt and your shame at the foot of the cross. You, you can bring it there and leave it there. You can stop making sacrifices of other people with your angry outbursts and your frustrated, bitter thoughts and instead receive the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins. Remember the sacrifice of Jesus for their sins and stand in grace for yourself and extend that grace to others. But if you find yourself just bitter and angry and outraged all the time, it could be that you've forgotten how forgiven you are how objectively true it is of you, and therefore you're spewing all of your own sin and shame and guilt all over others. And point number three, faith-filled sacrifices goodness in a sinful and shameful world. So by the blood of Jesus, we can draw near and we can actually begin to live lives that please our King. Right? Sin and shame must be broken and the gospel believed day to day to live a life to please God from rest in Jesus and not a life to try to appease God from our guilt. You get that? Like you have, you have rest in Jesus. You're forgiven. Nothing can take that. No one can snatch you out of his hand. So from that rest, we live a life to please him. We're not trying to appease him anymore from a restless guilt. Here's what Hebrews 11.6 says, that same chapter, just two verses after it talks about Abel. It says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you believe that? Do you believe God exists? And that he rewards those who draw near to him. He rewards those who draw near to him. That's what faith brings us into, this reality. Like, I have a God who exists, who has purchased me, he's brought me into his family, and as I draw near to him, he will reward me. Right? Isn't this what little kids do? Right? Little kids are just so helpful. They, they draw near to me all the time in my house. <laughs> and they ask me for things. Why? Because they think I'll help. So they think I can give them what they need or want, right? 
But they, that's why they draw near, because he could do something. His heart's for me. He wants to do something. He wants to draw near to me as I draw near to him. The blood of Jesus is speaking to us right now in this text. Trust me. Trust me. If I gave up my own son for you, will I not also with him graciously give you all things? Who can condemn you? Who can separate you from the love of Christ? Does not the blood of Jesus guarantee I will give you what your heart desires most, fellowship and worship and a life with me now and forever? I will give you whatever you need to get what you really want, which is me forever. That's what the blood of Jesus speaks to us. This kind of faith like Abel's faith that still speaks, Hebrews eleven four, leads to lives of faith-filled sacrifice. Lives of walking with Jesus, living for Jesus moment by moment. Paul in Romans 12, after detailing for 11 chapters the lavish mercy and grace and justification and love of God, says this in, in Romans 12, 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, By the mercies of God. Remember those mercies I just talked about for 11 chapters. I'm appealing to you by those. Remember those mercies and present your bodies as what? As living sacrifices, holy, acceptable. Hear that? Abel's sacrifice was accepted. It's acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, right, we're going to be memorizing this chapter together as a church in the second half of this year, and the rest of the chapter goes on to detail what it means to present our bodies as a living sacrifice flowing from this rest that we have by the blood of Jesus. So, church, what does it look like? What does it look like to live our lives resting in the blood of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus, to live by faith in his sacrifice and then live lives of sacrifice. What does it look like? Here's what Romans 12 details. Don't be haughty. <laughs> Basic stuff, right? Love one another. Love your enemies. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in trials. Bless those who persecute you. Be generous for the needs of the saints. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Love each other like you're really a family. Live at peace as much as you can with all. Don't seek vengeance because it belongs to God. Live in harmony with each other. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In other words, a summary of all this is lay down your pride, lay down your sin, Lay down your shame, trust Jesus, and live a life in every circumstance, in every place, in every moment that would show whoever you're with how precious Jesus is to you, how real Jesus is to you. Live a life that seeks to help others lay down their sin and their shame. The summary statement of all of it is what? Overcome evil with good. You're good. (laughs) From Genesis 4 through the redemption of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, from the ashes of our brokenness, because of the redemption of Jesus, comes real good. (laughs) Real good from our lives. Isn't all of this, that picture in Romans 12, the opposite of a Genesis 4 unbelief 
that seeks to take control and has selfish pride and shame and destroys and takes vengeance on others. Isn't this the opposite of a culture boasting and filling up on shameless sin that just wants to tear everything and everyone down? But this is a kind of alternate reality, a kind of, kind of alternate culture, alternate community. Like Abel, the world will not often be happy with our faith-filled worship. Like, why would we be surprised when we worship and we trust Jesus and we say we're for him and the world doesn't like us or says something mean on Facebook or says something mean on whatever the news channel is you like the least? Right? They, they may oppose us and they may mock us and they won't understand why we don't affirm and celebrate what they do. And like Abel, we seek to live by faith and for the approval of our king. But listen to me, we don't do this in arrogance. We've got it figured out. Y'all are nuts. We don't do it that way. We do this in the freedom of forgiveness. The freedom of receiving forgiveness. We love, why? Because we're better lovers. Right? No, because he first loved us. That's why we love. We speak a better word because we've heard a better word through the blood of Jesus. We're free to be a different kind of people with a different kind of hope and rest and love that flows from what? Faith. Trust. My God is in control. I'm a part of his family. We're free. We're free to boldly approach the throne of grace by the blood of Jesus, believing he rewards those who seek him. We're free to confess our need and our dependence. We're free to bring our sin and our shame to the throne out into the open, confess it, and then walk away with the forgiveness of Jesus Christ every single time, right? We're free to extend that grace to others. Notice Lamech going, right, however many times, seven million times I'll kill everybody, right? Jesus picks up on that seven number and goes, how many times should you forgive? Seventy times seven, Right? Be the opposite of Lamech in your forgiveness, church. And we're free to extend grace to others. We're free. You're free to lay down your bitterness. You're free to love people that are really hard to love. You're free to love enemies that hate you. You're free to overcome evil with good. We're free to be a living apologetic, an alternate community of grace and forgiveness in worship in a place of anger and vengeance and outrage and disobedience. Like the apologetic of the church in an age of outrage and anger and vengeance is just kindness and rest and forgiveness and love to those who hate us. And it always has been and it always will be until the day where we don't live in a Genesis 4 world anymore. We live in a Revelation 21 world. Pray with me. So Lord, for those that are in this room right now and haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ as the firstborn in the sacrifice for their sin, the one who can pay for their sins once for all, Lord, I pray that in this moment they would trust you. That in this moment they would receive forgiveness for their sins. They'd (laughs) They'd receive your righteousness. They'd be set free forever to live with you in your presence. Lord, would you do that? Lord, for those of us in this room who 
do trust Jesus, Lord, but we maybe are caught in cycles of sin and shame. Lord, would you, by the better word of Jesus, remind us of who we are, and by the power of your Spirit, in this moment, would you break the chains of canceled sin? Would you set the prisoners free? Your blood can make the foulest clean. Your blood availed for us. Lord, remind us of that gospel truth. Lord, so as we come to the table to eat and drink with Jesus, Lord, help us to lay down our sins at the foot of the cross, to lay down our shame, and to once again say, Lord, we, by your grace and by your mercy and by the better word of your blood, seek to live for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.